Welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the STR Data Lab. I want to welcome Mickey Croft here from Vector Travel. Mickey, are you ready to step into the STR Data Lab? I am ready. Thank you, Jamie. Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for joining. Maybe just starting out, can you give everyone sort of a rundown of and what Vector Travel is? Uh, and maybe a little bit of background about yourself as well. Sure, yeah. So uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Vector Travel. We founded it in March of 2018, basically because we saw a gap in the marketplace. Sonder and Lyric and Stay Alfred and, and the like uh, already existed. But what we didn't see was somebody doing a revenue share model, really um, kind of bringing a partnership around short-term rentals to the multifamily space. And since then, you know, we've kind of recognized um, sometimes as a result of some, you know, adversity with the, with the pandemic, but also just through introspection, we realized that what we do can apply to other asset classes. So really, I think the only filter on the supply side for us is that it's business to business. We don't deal with individual vacation homeowners, even if it's a multifamily property, uh, e.g. a condo. But, uh, but we would work with, say, a build-to-rent developer, and we're working on a office conversion to hotel, for example, now, and retail conversion to short-term rentals, and so forth. So really, I think now, to put it more broadly, we are a, kind of a commercial real estate short-term rental provider. So you mentioned Sonder, Lyric, say Alfred, and two out of those three companies are no longer longer around. And so what sort of made Vector Travel different? Yeah, I mean, it was the model and, and I think it still continues to be the model. And I don't disparage those companies for having gone under. I mean, they took, they, well, they raised a lot of money. They took big chances. They scaled rapidly. And I think generally they did what they said they would do. I think they delivered the service in terms of the consumers and they paid rent until they defaulted. What they weren't able to do, I think, was you know just achieve the KPIs um, and, and, achieve, and attain profitability. And I do think fundamentally that's a, a result of their model. When you are so heavily invested in leases, you're really not accreting any other value, right? Like they weren't investing in real estate. They didn't have an ownership stake. And when the market turns and whatever that means, whether it's on the demand side or on the supply side, you're really left holding the bag. And all you have are those obligations that continue despite what's going on with the rest of the market. And, and I think they were you know, kind of victims of their own success in that way. So, and that leads me to the question of how are you structured then? And how you set up your structure sort of help you succeed during the pandemic? Yeah, so from day one, uh, the thesis was that there should be a shared success model in the multifamily space. Now, did I have 100% confidence that it was going to work, that really anyone would say yes? No, I really didn't. I kind of started it on the heels of putting in about six years, co-founding and building up rented.com, which at the time was was kind of an acquisition marketplace. And then we had a rented capital fund uh, that was doing the same activity, frankly. I mean, we were leasing units or guaranteeing income and then you know, partnering with operators to, to seek that margin, that call it rental arbitrage or lease arbitrage. But it was kind of through that experience, even though when I left, I thought everything was going well with that. It just still seemed a little broken. It seemed a little risky for you know, rented or any of the operators that were engaged in that directly. And I don't know, I, I was even kind of thinking a couple of steps ahead about the about the real estate providers that yes, they got leases. And at that point in time, at, you know, you could get some, there was some softness, I guess, uh, in certain sub markets. So you could get 
rent abatement or you could get, you know, rent discounts. And so from the real estate side, it was great. You filled up whatever, 10, 20, 50 units in one fell swoop. But, you know, what would happen next year? Were they, were they building in proper escalations? What about the operator's, you know, performance? Uh, and I mean, operationally, were they a good steward of the asset? Was there any incentive for them to do so? Yes, you could evict them perhaps, but would you be able to? If you had 50, 50 leases with them and the market still was soft, would you be able to? And so I really just started connecting the dots from, you know, previously in my career. And so, you know, to kind of answer that too, I worked in commercial real estate for the first, um, I don't know, eight years of my career professionally. Part of that, I played baseball, but, uh, but, uh, but when I actually had a job, it was, uh, you know, I worked in development, I worked in commercial mortgage banking, you know, I was an analyst in, in these fields. And so I was thinking about all of these things. I'd underwritten deals that had uh, percentage rents from retail. And I just said, why can't this work? And then I also was looking at hotel deals. Hotel management, rev share, right? I mean, different model, but still revenue share fee. Long-term apartment management, similar revenue share. So I just thought, hey, there's enough going for this. I think there's enough um, comfort and, and familiarity with a revenue share model, even if it's a totally different activity, that it's worth trying. And, you know, thankfully for us, we got it out there. We started small, you know, local developer in LA, local developer in San Diego, and then, you know, a handful of other kind of small time clients. But in year one, we signed our first institutional client. And thankfully, we still have them as a client, which I think is a testament to our model, in addition to, you know, just our commitment to to our clients. So I'm assuming that meant that you had to grow maybe slower than some of these other companies that were doing sort of lease arbitrage taking those long-term leases. Is that right? Yeah. So I would say, I, I think objectively slower, but you know, 2019, I think was 300% growth. 2020 was something similar, believe it or not, you know, even though the pandemic hit and we were hurt badly by it, but we pivoted, we tried different things. We, we, you know, managed to uh, continue to grow, but I think overall slower uh, than, than VC backed companies and those willing and able to lease and do these commitments. I also think it, it, does not happen as smoothly for us. So we may have a quarter of being flat or even declining. And then all of a sudden we get rapid growth again. And that's actually really difficult to manage because ideally you have a consistent flywheel and whether it's steady growth or it's, or it's a rapid pace of growth, but it's the rate is somewhat consistent so that you can plan for it and you can manage it and you can staff it and you can find partners to service it and you can get funding around it and so forth. But when it's when it comes in chunks, it is more difficult. But that I think that's also been a product of our model. But again, hey, we're still standing as a result of our model, too. So I, I, I'm careful not to uh, sort of disparage that approach because I do think it's a winning formula. And I think we're seeing more and more companies get into it, at least versions of it. Yeah. So how many properties do you guys currently have under management? Yeah. So we're, we're around 350 um, listings right now. I'll admit we started the year far larger. Um, and so this could be viewed some in some ways as a cautionary tale, I guess. But you know, to land the plane here in a second, we also have a really big pipeline right now. And I think we'll get back to it. But I think we started the year somewhere around 1500 listings. And they were not all exactly what you would think. They weren't all full-time short-term rental units. So basically during the pandemic, we looked at what do we have in terms of an operation? Where else can it be applied? And one of the places we, we stumbled upon was the timeshare industry, just kind of through our network, uh, but then some initial exploration, pilot project, pilot deal. And 
you know, turns out we crushed it. We, we delivered two to three X what they had been doing in rental income, which makes sense. This is all we do. We're specialists in this. They're specialists in timeshare. I have no idea how to run a timeshare program or sell somebody a timeshare, nor do I want to. But anyway, through a, uh, you know, we did the pilot and then we signed a portfolio level deal with a independent, but, you know, relatively large timeshare resort company. And we built custom integrations. We had all that flowing and then uh, they had a change of leadership and, you know, defaulted on the agreement and it went away. And then, you know, so that's sort of an outside circumstance in my view, not exactly directly related to our operation or our inputs. And then another client that we've had for, for years now sold off a bunch of assets. It's just market timing. Uh, they happen to overlap with where we had lots of density. One, we had maybe 30 units, another, we had 25, another, we had 15, another, we had 30, you know, so that starts to just chip away at your inventory. And I do think that that is something that's different about a revenue share model also is that there almost has to be some flexibility. There has to be some optionality and it is a partnership. And so you can't simply rely on your attorneys or your legal agreements and say, hey, I've got a lease. I have a leasehold interest here and it's going to transfer or whatever. You have to take their needs into account, whether it's maybe they change, maybe they refinance and their new lender will not recognize this income. Well, guess what? You're going to shut down your operation. That's going to hurt. <laughs> um, but then again, uh, if, if you are a good partner, if you play the long game, then at least in our experience, they tap you for some other opportunity. You know, they'll, they'll, they're, they're probably not going away. So they're, they're going to continue to invest in commercial real estate. They'll find ways to bring you in. So you mentioned the pipeline. What does the pipeline look like today? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So um, some of it feels like a random walk at times, like that timeshare story. We've signed a 165-unit apartment hotel deal in the Charleston market. So that's a, a you know probably late Q, probably late 2023, probably Q3, Q4. Um, so it doesn't help us now, but we've signed that, and so that's full building management. You know, you have Central out there now doing full building management, but I would say multifamily first, and then the hospitality second. And that's generally how we operate in multifamily too right now, but, but not, you know, instead of doing the, uh, the full service, uh, full building, we're just taking a piece. Anyway, that's leaning into hospitality first. Uh, one of the things we sometimes complain about just about the business internally is, you know, Hey, it's a square peg round hole. What's paradoxical there is that's the reason we can exist, right? That's the value we're bringing is they have a vacancy. We can come apply this different use and generate value for them. And it's hard enough, it's different enough, it's a different tech stack, it's a different culture. That's why they need us. And that's why we can earn a fee doing it. Otherwise, they would just do it themselves, right? But anyway, we like these hotel deals for that for that purpose. We do want to be a little bit careful about what we're doing and, and what that total mix looks like. You know, we prefer that they stay on the apartment hotel side for, for various reasons. You know, I think the product differentiation makes sense. I also think hotels do a great job that, I mean, especially, uh, you know, branded hotels, and and the and the the established operators they do a great job. Yes, we're coming in with a different model, and some of our competitors are doing the same thing. I know the uh, kind of tech first, human second sort of model, which can drive NOI on their behalfs. But uh, you know, we do just want to be somewhat thoughtful around that. Keep to boutique. Keep to uh, keep to the product that has some of that unique feature that the apartments had too, you know, additional space, kitchens and so forth. So that's part of it. We've also gotten into, instead of just doing one-off sort of transactions around a given property, but portfolio level deals with multifamily clients, sales cycles forever. I mean, I, I don't know how long some of these we've been working on, but we have a really big one that's that's pending right now. And and we expect to, to go set up, I think, hundreds of units as a result of that here in, in the next quarter or so. So that's fun, right? And so it's not all negative to, to stick to your model generally and, and do that. Now, 
we've also, as a related on a related front, I guess just gotten comfortable enough in our own skin as an organization and as operators to take a step toward what Lyric and Stay Alfred and Sonder, you know, had been or continue to do. We don't lease units. It's really a different structure. You know, you've got payments up front, you've got deposits, you've got, I would even just say like a an oppositional relationship, less or less C versus, you know, what I was talking about being a little bit more on, as a partner with our other operation. But we are, we have rolled out something called vector guarantees where we, uh, we'll guarantee our performance to our clients. And, and you know, we fit it into how we operate now in, in a few uh, important ways, but we'll take on a little additional risk in terms of the performance, but also the furnishings, you know, covering all of that directly, which is not something we've been accustomed to doing in the past. We might, we might manage the setup process, but the operation might repay the, um, the cost of that. And so, so that's gained quite a bit of traction. We've got, um, that's specifically focused in the student housing space for us. That's a, that's an area we've worked in for a while and we're only doing that program in that space right now, but it's working. So leads me to maybe two follow-up questions. One, when you're thinking about your strategy of how to expand, it, it sounds like you're very focused on on multifamily. And then when you're thinking about how to expand, is it the partners and finding the right partners and being in any market that partner's in or willing to have you in? Or are you going after specific types of markets to and then finding the partners that you'd like to work with in those cities? Well, I mean, it's for good or ill, it is mostly uh, sort of top-down, client-first, you know, doing the mm-hmm. account level selling. And then we sort of, based on their needs, you know, we sort of get uh, funneled into where they mm-hmm. have an opportunity for us, which is generally around vacancy. If, you know, assuming we're talking about multifamily, if it were a hotel or, or whatever, I think that's a little bit different, but I think still similar. Hey, we've got this uh, plot of land, we're going to build something new, or hey, we have this office and we're going to convert it or whatever. Now that said, we look at AirDNA data and we key in on basically high rev par markets with very low seasonality. And we want to be in those markets, right? You know, some of those traditionally may not even allow short-term rentals, but like the New York's and San Francisco's and LA's and uh, Seattle's and so forth. But what we found are these kind of tier two and even tier three markets can have the same dynamic. It just may not be we may not know what the depth of that demand is or, or, you know, how many units it could really handle, but we're willing to try. And so, so like Charleston, Athens, Georgia, Oxford, Mississippi, you know, I don't think these have happened like Nashville's happened or Austin's happened. They're happening and, and there's some data and we'd, we'd like to be, uh, you know, in front of that and we're working on, on doing that in some of those markets. And I think we may get more aggressive with some of those, with, with some of that outreach and even just do some bottom up stuff, you know, property level, like, Hey, we looked at the data. We like the, we like your building. We'd like to work with you, which is uh, kind of going back to the start for me with with Rinda.com days. And markets like Charleston with such strong restrictions on short-term rentals to be able to get in with a short-term rental product zoned and sort of operating like a hotel. And it seems like a great opportunity. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, if we can be in a place that is supply constrained um, and also has great just sort of market fundamentals, I mean, that's that's ideal. There's, there's a, a property we're working on I guess I shouldn't say since we don't have the deal yet, but in a uh, kind of, you know, tier three beach market in California, and it happens to be a former hotel property and, uh, and it could go multifamily, it could go hotel. And so we're in there right now, you know, working with a small deal, but, you know, 20 to 30 units, but we want to win that sort of stuff. And we, we'd love to get into higher rev par markets. I, I think another, you know, just, I won't say 
I mean, it's a consequence of the business model at times has been a little bit of the mindset of like, we'll, we have to take what we can get. I mean, yeah, there's a minimum, a minimum standard in terms of quality and expectation of guest experience. It's hard to know before you get in there, I will say, um, until you're actually, you know, if you were a resident living there or, you know, in our case, operating there, it's really hard to know just doing a property tour, you know, they know how to clean it up for you, <laughs> the common areas and inside the units. And they may not let you into some of the units and so forth. And so, you know, we wound up with, with certain assets, you know, I think maybe we call them kind of B minus. And if they don't have the best maintenance operation or they don't have great pest control or whatever, that can really negatively impact your reviews. And it really makes it an uphill battle to operate short terminals where, you know, consumer expectations continue to climb. The OTA expectations for their operators and their listings, you know, continue to increase too. Yeah. So, so you mentioned funding and sort of working with your partners. And how are you guys funded today? Is is it bootstrapped? Are you do you have outside funding? How do you sort of fund your expansion? Assume it's not cheap to sort of go into a new market, add 150 new units. Uh, how, how are you funding it today? We, we've bootstrapped it to date. I mean, that's, and that's not always been easy, but it, it is a business that can cash flow. I mean, it does mean making some tough decisions at times. It means, you know, for us, where we had expanded quite a bit to start the year, like I talked about in terms of that unit count. And then when unit count goes down, we had to, you know, trim, trim the staff, uh, corporate staff, obviously any local support staff that was going with it. So, yeah, so that's difficult. Now we were, we were probably getting ready to explore uh, the markets force of fundraising earlier in the year, but we, we had that happening. And then just those sort of external circumstances with the markets and Russia and so forth. We just said, all right, let's table that. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll focus on the business. We'll focus on quality and improving what we're doing and then find new avenues for growth, which is, you know, I think right where we are right now. That's great. So let's get into current performance. So Q3, we just got done with the summer. I'm sure that was a, a big uh, high season for most of the markets you're at. So how'd Q3 sort of end up? Uh, how does that compare to prior year? And maybe how's it looking going forward? Yeah. So, I mean, something you know well is that our category and, and actually even our, our overlay of markets, we didn't suffer greatly. I mean, at least relative to hotels and maybe certain tier one markets, but we had a lot of exposure to some smaller markets that did relatively well in 2020. I mean, an anecdote would, would just be, we didn't really lose inventory in 2020. Then we added quite a bit and grew, but in terms of the stuff we started with, you know, pre-March 2020, we kept that the rest of the year. And I think the viewpoint from our clients was like, well, even if it's less than expectation, it's still something and they're paying and whatever. When there was so much uncertainty around regular tenants, you know, will they continue to pay rent? And then compared to uh, the lease arb operators defaulting left and right on, on obligations where they weren't making money. So we looked relatively good and relatively safe during that period of time. 2021 was, was you know, a pretty strong year overall with the blips in the data coming with Delta and Omicron waves. And so, yeah, we'd feel like everything was was <laughs> unleashed and, and, you know, COVID was almost behind us. And then we'd get that new variant and all of a sudden we'd have cancellations. I wouldn't say spike, but cancellations would increase again. And that's something we've been tracking really closely since about April of, uh, of 2020. You know, that's that's something we we follow closely by market and then just 
drill down. Is that something that's in our control or is it something that's an outside circumstance like hurricane or whatever? But yeah, generally speaking, you know, 2021 was, was pretty strong with the exception of like August. And so overall, um, you know, up slightly in 2022, you know, July was around like 75% uh, occupancy per, for us. And the data that that I'm reporting on, if a unit were offline, it's it is showing it's vacant for us. But if we're offline for maintenance, so maybe there's a couple of points here and there that we could add back. Uh, but you know, it's directionally directionally close. So we're around 75, percent and uh, and we are in some of these smaller markets too. So I, I should mention that that you know we've said yes to places that. I, I guess I'd say we wouldn't whiteboard to be in like Midland, Texas is a, a market in West Texas, um, highly dependent upon oil and gas market. So, you know, maybe it, maybe it correlates to the overall economy, but it doesn't necessarily follow the rest of travel patterns. Um, certainly not. No, I, I've looked at the numbers in Midland. It's like you plot Midland Revpar and oil prices and it's, uh, <laughs> they follow each other almost exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. So it's a weird one to be in, but um, it's actually been, it's been good. It's been fine. And I feel like we've, we've done what we set out to do on behalf of our client, which was activate vacancy, generate additional NOI. And then in terms of the consumers, you know, the, the, the actual paying customers, those who pay all of our bills and our clients' bills uh, relative to our units, I think we've delivered a good experience for them where they got to live in an apartment on a temporary basis that had everything they needed. They got to show up with a, uh, with a suitcase and, you know, work their job and not have to worry about anything. So um, I think it's, I think it's worked out well. And I'm glad that we've maybe again, as a result of our model, just found ways to say yes to things like that because we've really been pleasantly surprised when we looked at Midland data, you know, we, there were no pro operators at the time that we could find. Um, we saw some, some highlights, you know, some surprisingly good looking ADR on some units uh, in occupancy. So rep bar, but we didn't, we didn't see enough to warrant like a 50 unit investment, but that's what we wound up doing is setting up 50 units. And, and it worked out um, similarly in Wichita, Kansas, you know, there, I think when we went there, there really weren't any professional operators. We've been there a few years and, um, and we've like rents are, are so much lower there that when you hear, let's say an $80 ADR um, that we generated, you know, $55 uh, uh, rev par, you're like, that doesn't sound very good. Well, we still generated rent premiums on behalf of our client. And so it's been relatively successful in that market too. But yeah, you know, overall, I think we're, it looks like we were at Q3, 70, 72%, $92 uh, ADR. And so, you know, that's not anywhere close to say like a Mint House or a Sonder ADR. Um, I think our occupancy is probably higher, though I'm not I'm not 100% on that, of course. Uh, but they also have great density oftentimes in a given location. But I do think that we're really quite good at taking a, I mean, we're good when an A property too, of course, it makes it all easier, a brand new A property, CBD location and so forth. But I think we're, we're pretty good as an organization of taking something that is a more challenging market or more challenging property and, you know, setting it up, positioning it in the market, still promising, you know, what we're delivering, uh, but, but then ultimately repeating that over time on behalf of our clients. Yeah. So I primarily, how do you guys drive bookings to the property? Is it direct bookings, the OTAs? So what, where are you seeing the most um, traffic there? Yeah. So we are still an OTA first booking sort of organization, or I guess I should say, you know, it's really almost all online bookings um, as opposed to maybe a, a more mature like vacation rental company that may have a, a higher percentage of, of phone bookings. We do a handful of those, but um, really even when 
a call might come in, we're still going to probably drive them back to the website to book. But yeah, you know, we've been in the kind of 20% range on direct bookings, which is, I, you know, I think we're comfortable with that range right now. Strategically, maybe in a year or two, we'd love to be up in the 40, 50% range. But for me, driving the business and thinking about you know, how do I build value here? Um, and what, what really grows the business for us, it's client acquisition and unit growth more so than direct bookings, even though direct bookings help that too, um, you know, increases our margins and, and, and so forth and, and helps our clients helps with client payouts. And we have this general belief that when the clients do well, we do well as a result. Um, hard, hard sometimes to, to tie those two together, but, uh, but yeah. And then we are adopters of new platforms. So, if anything comes along that is integrated, we're guest user, and you know if there's whether it's through a channel manager or or direct integration, as long as we don't have to pay upfront, you know we just pay for success. We're going to say yes. So you know we're of course on Homes and Villas by Marriott with the inventory that qualifies. We're on Hopper, Wimstay, you know at ease. Who knows? We say yes and and see what happens. Of course, those are the long tail. You know the fat head is uh, it's actually. It's actually kind of switched for us uh, in, in some of the markets lately where booking.com takes up an even greater percentage. And that's kind of been interesting to see. And some of it seems to be related to when they started uh, accepting some of the payments on behalf. It's still kind of consumer driven on that front, but that's interesting for the operator. You know, it should reduce fraud, assuming they, they continue to pay us out or at least fraud from our perspective and chargebacks. But, uh, but yeah, and then Airbnb and then Verbo and Expedia and then that long tail that I mentioned. So we're, we're coming up to the end of the interview. I've got two final questions for you. And I know you're a smart guy, Mickey. So uh, one of my, my favorite questions is, what is that one stat you look at on a, a regular basis? Is it, and whether related to the economy, or related to your business? So what, what sort of gives you your health check on, on how things are going? Yeah, like I said before, where... Um, you know, the consumer is the one that really funds the entire operation for us. We focus on on guest experience. And ironically, it has not been a strong suit of ours for long. I, I'd credit a, the director of operations on our team, Jesse Brown, for bringing in a very data-driven approach maybe six, eight months ago to our guest experience, where basically he pulled all of our data and analyzed it and put it through some filters and looked at essentially he calls it the cost of poor quality. And so again, sometimes that poor quality was somewhat out, outside of our control. Maybe it was the maintenance provided by the building, or maybe it was you know some, some issue related to the building and not directly our operation, but plenty of times it was our operation too. Maybe we had a poor cleaner in a given market and we didn't change that fast enough. Or maybe we had somebody having pretty bad days for a consistent stretch on the, on the customer service team, guest experience team, whatever it may have been. We looked at review scores by property, by unit, you know, because we tend to have multiple units per asset, you know, and then and then overall, and we looked by category, you know, overall cleaning, check-in, and so forth. And we use that data first to quantify what is the impact of us going from, let's say maybe last year at a given asset, we were at four six and now we're at four three. And it's like, what what does that cost us? And then we drilled down into the performance. In that, you know, in that specific multifamily asset, unit by unit, and we'd say, all right, this one's at a four seven, this one's at a four two. Let's look at the output difference in terms of the in terms of the revenue, and we quantified all of that, and then we picked it apart and we said, all right, well, let's find the underlying issues, let's find the root causes of all of these issues, and you know, I do think that if we were VC backed, maybe we would have gotten through that whole the, the output of that exercise, right? So like, the the first 
the first thing is just dealing with it, like recognizing you got a problem, facing it, understanding it. And that's, that's what we did. You know, starting- so are, are, are you, are you losing sleep over bad reviews? Ah, uh, you know, I think at times, I mean, it pisses me, the, it pisses me off. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we do a reviews meeting. We used to do them weekly. We've spaced them out a little bit more just to give a little more data and smooth it out a little bit. And I mean, there's a cost to that, of course, that if, if there's an issue, you, you know, you're behind it, but I'd rather have more data than less data, I think. And so we space those out to every, uh, I think they're every like three weeks now, but anyway, I, I attend those too. But yeah, it's taken us some time, you know, to to dissect those things. And we've said, okay, in this market, you know, we need to do preventive maintenance. We, you know, we need to go in and paint, and we need the maintenance team to come in and whatever. And in this market, we also need to address the check-in process. And so when we look at the auto messages, we look at you know even just the structure. Like we use something for automated check-in, no matter what. Usually it's Key Cafe or it's keyless entry locks. And in some of those markets, because Key Cafe has some limitations, we had to swap out a machine, even if we had to stick with Key Cafe, or we had to switch from Key Cafe to uh, links in, in the in those locks there. And then customer service. Uh, I mean, I. I call it insourcing. We, when we started the business, um, first it was just me doing everything, but then, you know, as quickly as we could, I think we hired a US based uh, ops person. And then just soon after that, we hired a handful of uh, folks in the Philippines to do remote support. And, and that's a whole, that's a whole business now, right. With uh, extent team. And my, my co-founder has one called the clear desk and he does that for, for businesses outside of this. But, um, but yeah, we've, we've actually started insourcing some of this. So hospitality people based in the U S across time zones, and we do an NPS score too, you know, in-stay NPS score, and the NPS scores have spiked since we've since we've done all of this work. I won't I won't attribute to any single factor, but my guess is the single biggest factor is the just somewhat improved talent and uh, you know native English speakers, same culture, same everything that just seems to help them connect a little bit more and maybe understand the needs and concerns a little bit better than than what we've been able to do in the past. Now we still have the remote team. You know, they're doing some overflow guest services now and they're doing other admin functions for us. But yeah, it seems to be a winning formula shaping up now. And probably, and a lot of it is just tracking it and you can't make improvements until you know and start tracking it over time and start to see what works and what doesn't. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's that cliche of uh, you manage what you measure and you measure what you manage and so forth. So I, I think that that's really that what, what we've been engaged on. And then you know, what's, what's cool about that is it's, it's self-fulfilling, right? Like you do that and then you, you kind of raise the bar and then they're going to want to shoot for, you know, an even higher score and we can incentivize that. But furthermore, the performance tends to increase, right? And so then those clients that have that good experience, they can become advocates, whether it's internally in their organization to help expansion with that one account, or they become advocates for you across the industry. It's a big industry, but it's tight knit. And even the niches within it, same thing, student housing within multifamily, pretty big, but it's very well, um, I mean, it's you know somewhat incestuous. The folks move around from, from company to company at times, but they're specialists. And so as the word gets out that we specialize in this, that we're a good partner and that we do what we say we'll do, I would say operationally, then you know, it gets easier for us even on the acquisition side. So Mickey, last question. If we came back a year from now, let's say October, uh, 2023, what do you think the headline is for either uh, Mickey or, or vector travel? <laughs> I think if we're doing it right, we're, we stay out of the headlines. I mean, honestly, we, we've been, um, you know, we've been flying generally under the radar. It's not, it's not that we shy away from press or doing a podcast or whatever, but, um, I think it's more that we have this blue collar ethos where we operate and we find the needs and we, and we do it for them. But I mean, 
to actually answer your question, we got to get back over that. Maybe it's a vanity thing, but we got to get back to the the thousand plus unit mark in terms of the the full units, not not even you know a partnership where you've got variable calendars. But I'm just a growth oriented guy. Uh, that's what's fun for me. That's what I like doing, and I like managing that and leading that. And ultimately, I like delivering a solution in a broader scale. I didn't do this to do a small business. Maybe it's a small business still, but I want to do this at a, at a bigger scale. Um, I do think you know. We probably will look at raising or, or some kind of recap um, at some point here as, as you know, d- despite what's going on in the outside market, if, if we have a good company and we have a good growth story, I have confidence that we will raise and, um, and do so in terms that we want. And it's just that's what we've been thoughtful about to date is we just didn't want to do it too early when we didn't know what we we're doing or really going after and we couldn't set our own terms. We wanted to do it when when everything lined up just right. And and maybe that could have happened earlier in the year, but we didn't do it. And so here we are. And um, I, I think that, that will be part of our story going forward too. That sounds like a great headline to me. Uh, so for our listeners, where can people find you if they want to uh, connect? Yeah. I mean, hey, I'm on LinkedIn and I connect with just about everybody. Um, so, you know, Mickey Croft on there and, and you can follow Vector Travel, but uh, it's vectorstays.com is our URL. Thank you. Awesome. Great. And thanks for joining the STR Data Lab. All right. Thank you, Jamie. 